Grace March. A 14-year-old boy is finishing his last year at middle school, and suddenly, the pandemic hits. He can't see his friends. He finishes his tests online and spends his summer indoors. In the fall, he begins a new high school, but struggles to meet people through the boxes of a Zoom screen. Every morning, he rolls over to grab his mom's old laptop and work from bed. He rarely leaves his room because every other space in the house has been converted into offices for his parents and sisters. His old friends have started new schools too, but he's scarcely heard from them. And he's beginning to feel like they don't care about him anymore. What social interaction he does get is with his family, who he's sick of, and online through social media and video games where kindness and sincerity are in short supply. His conversations with teachers are limited to their emailing him about grades and late assignments. And as the long winter comes and passes, he begins to accept that he's simply a bad student. <coughs> Terrified of saying something stupid or uncool, he keeps his microphone on mute, and when he's allowed, turns his video off too. He becomes a blank screen. This boy is none of us in particular. He's fictional. But I think we can all relate to some aspect of his story. Some of you may have been impacted by the pandemic in very, very direct ways. You may have gotten COVID yourself, and maybe you have a relative who got severely sick or even died. If that's the case, I'm so sorry for your hardship and loss. But even for those who don't know anyone who passed, it can be surprisingly easy to underestimate how much the pandemic radically changed our lives. To take my own life just as an example, after a summer working at Pasquani's remote program last year, I decided to move in with my grandfather, which was only, only possible because I was finishing my university degree online. It was a good decision, a wonderful opportunity to spend time with him and help out around the house. I had an excellent year academically. There's a park nearby where I could run and exercise. And on the whole, I felt I was living a pretty full life. At the very least, I had it way better than most people. So how could I can how could I complain? But, and I only realized this when I started writing this talk, outside my immediate, ma immediate family, I never hung out in the flesh with anyone remotely close to my own age during that time. Isn't that strange? And I'm sure many of you have found yourselves in similar circumstances. I wonder, how did that lack of peer-to-peer -peer interaction change me? And how might it have changed you? My overarching question today is this. How do we make the best of tragedy? Whether it's a global pandemic or a death in the family. How do we find resilience when we've been beaten down by things out of our control? How do we forgive ourselves when we are unable to access that resilience and find ourselves acting less than our best? There are infinite ways to answer these questions. We can fall back on friends and family. We can take time to recharge. We can contribute small acts of service, whatever we can muster that add up over time. We can find escape in art and nature. But today I want to focus on just one of these, finding balance, harmony, moderation. At its core, COVID and tragedies like it knock us off our balance. They disrupt our sense of normalcy. They leave an absence, or perhaps a burdensome presence that forces us to adapt on the fly. For the past few years in popular culture, striving for balance has often been discussed in terms of self-care. 
addressing your various needs, both physical and spiritual, so that you can continue to work and live a happy life. This might look like getting more rest or decompressing with a good book or TV show. It might look, it might look like spending time with friends, or if you're more of an introvert like me, finding time to be alone. It might look like finding time to exercise, play, and be joyful. But I want to discuss another form of finding balance, balancing our values and virtues. If you ever want to play a fun little game with yourself, or a game I find fun, think about how many traditional words of wisdom seem to counterbalance each other. For example, we're told you should trust yourself and rely on yourself. But then again, we're also told no person's an island. We're told hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. But then we're also told all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. You can do this for countless examples. And what the exercise reveals is that all these values, independence versus friendship, hard work versus playfulness, they all need to be balanced. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that the question of how to live was a matter of possessing certain good qualities, virtues. We learn these virtues by following the examples of others and dedicate our whole lives to refining our understanding and practice of them. The virtues are necessary for achieving human flourishing and happiness, or what Aristotle called eudaimonia. Gentlemen, welcome to your first lecture on virtue ethics. But possessing these qualities is more complicated than simply filling up a progress bar. Aristotle believed that lack of virtue or vice was the result of a deficiency or excess of a certain tendency. For example, courage, the tendency to take risks, could reach a state of deficiency that became cowardice. Or it could reach a state of excess that verged on recklessness. Similarly, a lack of kindness obviously results in meanness, but an excess can result in someone who will compromise their beliefs in order to avoid offending others. So how do we avoid deficiency and excess? The solution, according to Aristotle, is finding the golden mean, or average, between the extremes. Finding balance. This balance will allow us to be courageous yet cautious, kind yet tough, and honest yet tactful, all at the same time. For this reason, the value of temperance, another word for moderation or self-restraint, is traditionally considered to be a cardinal virtue in Greek and Christian uh, thought. By the same token, several Eastern religions, such as Confucianism and Taoism, speak of following the Tao, which means the path or way. The Tao involves finding harmony in between two extremes, yin and yang, and not forcing things one way or the other. This principle even applies to many of our central messages at Pasquani. Our, our camp motto is stop and think. For a bunch of adolescent boys prone to impulsivity, it's a pretty good rule to live by. But make no mistake, you can definitely think too much. If ruminative thoughts are doubts and fears that intrude into your mind and prevent you from focusing on the task at hand, many of you may have experienced these. It can quickly lead to catastrophic thinking, the tendency to jump to the worst case scenario. Instead of making a good decision based on reasonable outcomes, Catastrophic thinking may cause you to overreact or not act at all because you believe disaster is inevitable. This is why, as Mr. Michael explained in his chapel talk last Sunday, stop and think is part of a longer progression. You sow a thought in order to reap an act. You sow an act to reap a habit, a habit of character, and so on. 
In the same vein, we speak at Pasquani of holding ourselves to incredibly high standards, but this too can backfire if not kept in balance. In school, I developed a habit of debilitating perfectionism with my work. I would regularly choose to submit an assignment late or not submit it at all, rather than submitting something that I felt was below my standards. It's an urge I'll always be fighting, but I've only managed to shake this habit within the past couple of years. A piece of advice on perfectionism that I never stopped thinking about came from the incomparable Bill Talley, a counselor here from 2015 to 2018. Bill was organizing the council breakfast, something the council cooks up for campers on our sixth week of camp, and I was chopping dozens of onions alongside a few other counselors. I was having trouble chopping efficiently because I would spend too much time trying to per perfectly peel off the inedible skin from the edible layer beneath it. If any of you have cut onions, you may have had this problem. Bill Talley, being Bill Talley, was giving everyone chopping advice, and when he saw what I was doing, he grabbed the onion from my hand, tore off the outer layers, and threw them in the trash. Isn't that part edible, I asked? And he said, your time is more valuable than the outer layer of an onion. Isn't that sweet? I thought, like, heck yeah. My time is more valuable than the outer layer of an onion. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I think about that story every time I'm writing an assignment, or of course, handling an onion. In all things, even vegetable chopping, one must be able to strike a balance. What's interesting is that this process is highly personal. So personal that it's largely impossible to put into words. You can't clearly describe in language the perfect amount of kindness, toughness, or honesty required in a given situation. Plus, the right amount of these qualities for me probably isn't the same or isn't the right amount for you. Instead, finding balance is a matter of training your instincts and emotional patterns. This is why the philosopher Kongzu, often referred to as Confucius in the West, didn't give a definition when asked to explain the good life to his disciples. Instead, he said goodness is found in little everyday decisions and habits, not grand abstract principles. It's something that must be practiced as much as understood. I like to think of this process as a kind of moral triangulation. When you make a mistake, let's say you acted cowardly, you might compensate for that mistake by striving to be a little more courageous. But then you might swing too far in the opposite direction and act recklessly. So you attempt to be more cautious next time. You keep swinging between these two extremes, but each time you get a little closer to your goal. Moral triangulation. It's a process that needs to be lived out rather than talked through. In contemporary philosophy, philosophy thinkers have begun. Yeah. In contemporary philosophy, thinkers have begun to talk about these experiences in terms of contradiction. For many years, philosophers have thought of contradiction merely as a rule of logic, a rule of non-contradiction. You may have heard this: something can't be and not be at the same time. Perhaps this is true when you're speaking scientifically or logically, but we experience feelings of contradiction constantly. Emotion is contradictory by its, very no by its very nature. One can have the insatiable desire to eat a whole bag of chips, yet know and dread how terrible it will make them feel later. They can know that the stereotypes surrounding their gender, race, or religion are nonsense. They don't reflect their true selves, yet still feel trapped in the boundaries of those identities. They can even love their father, yet resent him, maybe for withholding praise, or not being present enough, or being harsh to their mother. Our emotions don't follow the rules of logic. Walt Whitman wrote as much in his epic poem, Song of Myself. Do I contradict myself, he asked? Very well, then, I contradict myself. 
I am large, I contain multitudes. But the idea of containing multitudes actually has a scientific basis. In the field of psychology, some therapists abide by the model of the inner child as a way of representing the self. Under this view, everyone has an inner child that is vulnerable, playful, creative, and self-affirming. When one develops a mood disorder like depression or anxiety, they are falling victim to a harsher adult self that doesn't allow that inner child to express itself. This might take the form of negative self-talk like, I'm a terrible singer, so I shouldn't even try. Or, I've made so many mistakes that I'll always be a failure. Or, I'm an imposter, and I don't deserve to be this. The inner child and adult self are metaphors, abstract aspects of one's personality that need to develop a healthy method of communicating, a dialogue. Therapists work with patients by helping them learn how to connect to their inner child and give it a voice and appreciation. But the adult self is still necessary. It's what pushes us to an even higher standard. It reminds us of our duties and obligations. My inner child wrote this tree talk, but my adult self told me to write it, and then it edited it. <laughs> Once again, navigating between these two aspects of the self is a matter of finding balance. I'll leave you with one last point. We need to find balance among the stories we tell ourselves. We can fall into a trap of following or of allowing a single story, which may or may not be true, define who we are and how we see the world. These stories can be limited. For example, it may be true that I have struggled academically in the past, but if I told myself I was a bad student, I would never have pushed myself to achieve like I did last year. Or to use an example that pertains here at camp, I may miss my friends and family at home dearly, but I have also made dozens of friends here at camp that make my day-to-day -day life here fantastic. This phenomenon also exists on a grander, more political scale. We may believe that all the world's problems stem from a certain public figure, belief system, or political party, when the, when the reality is actually far more complex. For these reasons, the philosopher Odo Marquard advises us to embrace what he calls the polymyth. He believes we should tell each other as many stories as we can about who we are and how the world works. Sometimes these stories will contradict each other, but we can find freedom and opportunity in those contradictions. Freedom to try new things, shed old baggage, and be better people than we were before. And just because these stories contradict each other does not mean that they are untrue. For example, we've already discussed the hardship of life during a pandemic, but many of you have had the same experience that I did. But many of you may have had the same experience that I did, where after over a year in isolation, I found myself anxious to open up again to have to practice social skills that have gone rusty, to have to abandon the screens that have become my little safe haven. I can feel the excitement of what's about to unfold this summer, while also still acknowledging that anxiety of drastic change. So, after a year of chaos, I encourage you to find balance this summer. Embrace contradiction. Remember that even our oldest counselors have a playful inner child that is eager to burst forth, while even the youngest camper as an adult self that holds him to a higher standard. Remember that you can work too hard and think too much, and recognize that often our patience revealed is revealed when we're at our angriest. Our kindness is revealed when we're toughest on ourselves and others, and our strongest moments can come when we're most vulnerable.